0: Deuteronomy chapter 17 is going to be the chapter for this morning. We've already walked through a portion of it, and we will and have made it our ambition to walk through the remainder of it today, beginning in verse 14 and carrying us through verse 20, the conclusion of the chapter. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20 because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand? And Moses writes as he is carried along by God's spirit. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like All the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Since becoming a believer in Jesus Christ over a couple of decades ago, I have been privileged to know and follow many faithful Christian leaders. Some of those leaders were coaches of mine. In fact, one of the very first leaders who walked me through portions of the faith, was indeed a football coach of mine. Others were pastors. Still others have been professors. Professors of scripture, professors of theology, professors of church history, and so forth. Still others were simply exemplary members of the church, faithful servants of the body of Christ, one of the very first Christian leaders with whom I became intimately familiar was my pastor, my first pastor, Willie Clark. And I've, I've shared some things about Willie to you if you come on a regular basis and you'll hear more doubtless over the years. He was one of those first mentors that left an indelible impression on my life. I'll never be the same because of the influence Pastor Clark had on my life. You see, before trusting in Jesus Christ, I had imbibed a view of leadership that equated strength with dominance. Success with prestige. And leadership with essentially getting those around you to serve you. To do what you want them to do. It was a very worldly view of leadership. Willie Clark was different. And I remember this early on. I still can't remember the hugs he would give me. Pastor Clark is now with the Lord. He's one of those men that I miss so much more than I am able to express. But I remember his hugs and they were just humble, gentle, gracious hugs. And I recall the way he led. He led with humility. He led with gentleness. He led with forgiveness. He led with truth. And he led with grace. Rather than demanding Service from others, Pastor Clark sacrificed for those God had entrusted to his care. This was a different kind of leader than I had ever experienced before. He exposed me to a paradigm of leadership that really was revolutionary for me, coming to know Jesus Christ out of maybe a bit more of a pagan background and one that had simply adopted views of the world concerning leadership. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, we find a portrait of a different kind of leader. Specifically in the text, Moses gives us instruction and a description of God's king. So we're not just talking about a leader broadly, we're talking about a particular leader, a monarch, God's king. And what was it that God's king was to do? Who was God's king to be. And we find all of that right here in this text. And as we're going to see in the text, through the text, God's king was to be an entirely different king when compared to any other king prior to or perhaps even after. This was a new paradigm for Israel. This was revolutionary for Israel. This was a different kind of king. Well, we're going to walk through this text together. That is Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. If you're taking notes, we're going to walk through it by making three observations. Three observations from the text about God's king. You can jot those down quickly if you are taking notes. First of all, we're going to notice in the text what I would call the occasion for God's king. The occasion for God's king. And so here we just find the circumstances around which God would install a king. Secondly, after looking together at the occasion for God's king, we find the qualifications for God's king. Qualifications. Certain things must be true of this man for him to be king over Israel. And then finally, after looking at the occasion for God's king and the qualifications for God's king, we're going to look together at the instructions for God's king. God actually instructs his king in the text. What is it that the king is to do? And we'll actually probably spend the majority of our time there. What do you call that? The back porch, perhaps. So the back porch is larger than the rest of the house. How about that? In the name of Pastor Phil. Well, let's begin by looking together at verse 14 where we begin to see the occasion for God's king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now stop there. Throughout God's law, and especially in Deuteronomy, you find this also in the book of Exodus. When you see this word when, or if you see this conditional particle if, It's oftentimes the case that we just have a description of certain circumstances. And so it's not so much that God is instructing in this case. It's that God is describing what will be the case or what, in fact, is the case. And and he's going to go on to instruct, this is what you do when this is the case. Or this is what you do if this becomes the case. And that's what's taking place in our text. This is just the occasion. When this happens, when you enter the land which if you have been with us throughout Deuteronomy, you know that's the context for us as we think through the biblical story. This is the second generation of the Israelites after they've come out of Egypt and now they're standing on the plains of Moab and they're right before, standing before God's promised land, the land he had promised to give to Abraham and his descendants after him. Israel had been here before, but they had turned around. And what should have been, and this we found out in Deuteronomy chapter one, what should have been an 11-day journey amounted to about a 40-year journey. They should have already been there, but they weren't there because they disobeyed God and that entire generation was wiped out in the wilderness. But now you have a second generation of Israelites. Now they're standing in this same place. They see the land and Moses stands up finally as a 120-year-old preacher. I doubt I ever have that privilege. Perhaps I will. You never know. I doubt it. As a 120-year-old preacher, and he preaches his last sermon, and so now he's talking in terms of when you get there. When you get there. When you enter the land. When you possess the land. When you dispossess the inhabitants of the land. When you remove them by God's strength. Here are some things you are to do. Now, there are a couple of items in the text that should alarm us. We should take note of these. And they should alarm us concerning Israel's spiritual health. What's going on with the people of Israel at this point? We might even call these symptoms of a lack of health, symptoms of spiritual illness. And there are a couple. First of all, notice, God does not command Israel to install a king. Do you see that? So far in Deuteronomy, God has taken the initiative. He's instructing, he's commanding, he's forbidding. Israel is not taking the initiative. But in the text, Israel takes the initiative. With these words, I will set a king over me. You see that? Now, if you're reading through Deuteronomy, that should stand out to you. Wait a minute. What do you mean you will set a king over you? God is your master. He's your redeemer. He actually is your king. Israel at this point is described in terms of doing too much talking and not enough listening. And again, now God's just describing the occasion when you enter the land and you say, I will set a king over me. Because it will happen. Secondly, there's another thing I want you to notice in the text that is symptomatic of a lack of spiritual health. Pay close attention to what motivates Israel to insist on a king at the conclusion of verse 14? You see this? I will set a king over me like, like all the nations that are around me. I'm going to set a king over me because I want to be just like all of those people who do not know the Lord our God. You see? Up until this point, God has made it perfectly clear you are to be distinguished, sanctioned from, set apart from as my people. You ought to stand out like a sore thumb. We've talked about this. The King James Version translation, 1 Peter 2, the peculiarness, peculiarity of God's people. They were to be peculiar, unique, and distinct. Their pattern of life was to be distinguished from the inhabitants of Canaan. And God had spent chapters demonstrating this. Do not mimic the practices of the Canaanites. And so, for example, Israel's mourning practices, that is, the way they respond to death, was to be different from the Canaanites. Why? Because they don't view death in the same way. It is not death to die for those who know the living God. Israel's diet was to be different. The way they ate, what they ate, was to be distinct from the Canaanites, that is, the inhabitants of Canaan. Israel's calendar was to be different. They weren't just to walk in and adopt the calendar of the Canaanites, they were to adopt the calendar God had given them that was centered on and revolved around God's redemptive activity, His presence, and His promises. Now, why was this to be the case? Because Israel's God was the one true and living God. He was not the God of the Canaanites, as it were. They worshiped false gods. And so, God instructs them very clearly that because you know me, because you are mine, because I've redeemed you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you ought to look differently than those who do not know, treasure, and love me. Your life is to reflect the redemption accomplished on your behalf. Sound familiar? Don't mimic those who do not know the Lord. Don't pattern your lives after those who don't know the Lord. And isn't this always a challenge for us? It's so oftentimes the case that we are influenced more by the culture around us than we're influencing that culture. And really, even the conversation of influencing culture is quite a, a newer discussion. At various points in the church's history, there wasn't so much talk about influencing the culture as just being faithful to the God who redeemed them. And whether that influenced the culture or not, that's up to the Lord. But we were called to be distinct, peculiar, unique people serving the Lord our God in such a way that people are able to look at us and say, oh, they're different. And not necessarily, you know this, if you've come to know Jesus Christ and as you're reading all of these texts and interpreting them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know that it's not always in the food we eat now, right? Because all of those dietary laws pointed toward, pointed to the fulfillment of all of these things in Christ Jesus and this distinction that we have in Christ. And now the gospel goes out, not just to Jews, but to Jews and Gentiles. And the body of Christ is a mixed body in that sense. But God calls us to live distinct and separated lives as the church to such an extent that Jesus says, for example, in John 13, we've mentioned this even recently, that others will know you how? By your love for one another. That is, your love is to so mark you that others are asking questions about what in the world is different about this person? I've oftentimes heard Christians give testimony just in their workplace about The ways in which they respond to death, the ways in which they respond to challenges, and just having natural opportunities because others will come to them and say, how is it that you persist in joy or in hope in the midst of these kinds of things? And then what an opportunity it is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and to say, well, I know it is not death to die for those who know the living God because I know Christ. That's what makes me different. And that was to make Israel different. But now we get this symptom that the day was coming when they would desire to be just like the nations. Not a good direction. Not a flattering description. And as I mentioned to you, Israel already had a king. God was their king. And if we turn there, I believe it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when this comes to fruition, we won't turn there. You can turn there if you like, but I'm not going to. I'll just paraphrase. First Samuel chapter 8, Israel finally does do just this. They request a king. No, they insist on a king. And they insist on a king, the same language, just like all the nations around us. And what does God say? What does God say to Samuel? They've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. That's what's coming. On the one hand, Israel's insistence is foolish. On the other hand, I want you to notice something. God graciously makes provisions for Israel to have a king. But I want you to see what happens. He doesn't do this in precisely the same way they ask him to do it or they insist that he do it, right? We want a king like all the other nations. Now notice verse 15. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you turned over to 1 Samuel 8, well, you, you left us. I warned you. Come back to us. Some of you ran. I know some of you. Come on back, Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you. Notice whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, fine. You can have a king. I get to choose him. Now, don't miss this. There's a contrast here, there's a tension that doesn't finally get resolved until the coming of Jesus Christ, as you might suspect. The kind of king Israel will desire is not the kind of king God will someday provide. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's greeted like a king, isn't he? He comes like a king in fulfillment of Zechariah's promise. But it's not long before they realize that this is a king who will reign by means of a cross. We're Recall that Peter pulls out a sword in the garden. You remember this? In the garden of Gethsemane. And he cuts off Malchus's ear. And by the way, no one in a sword fight aims for the ear. No, Peter's aiming for the head. This is an attempt at a death blow. Because Peter's view of a king is just like the world's. And his view of the kingdom is just like the world's. Jesus, of course, rebukes him. Tells him to put away the sword. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. No more of this, he says. I believe that's in John's gospel where he makes that statement. No more of this. And then he actually heals the one who comes to arrest him. That's the kind of king We have come to know in Christ, one who serves his enemies, one whose reign is gracious and benevolent. We're going to come back to this time and time again. I told Pastor Tim this week, I think it was Pastor Tim I said this to. All texts are like this to one degree or another. They all lead us invariably to Jesus Christ. But Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, it just really feels like every verse you just want to preach Christ as the fulfillment of these promises. So God's gonna provide a king, but it's a different kind of king altogether. And this was always part of God's plan. This was found back in Genesis chapter 17. God had promised to bring kings through Abraham and Sarah. It was found back in Genesis 49. God would bring about his king through a particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. And the scepter would not part from Judah. So this was always a part of God's plan and it's tremendous to me as you look through God orchestrating all of these things for his glory and to bring about his plan, you even find Israel's foolishness in the midst of all of it. And none of this thwarts God's purposes. So in summary here on this first point, Israel would foolishly insist on a king like all the nations, but God would provide a different kind of king according to his gracious plan. The second point we find here is the qualifications for God's king. I want you to look down at the text with me again at verse 15, these qualifications, and these will be brief. So if that was the front porch, the house itself is much smaller, and then the back porch is the largest, perhaps. It's an odd sort of house this morning. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Notice, one from among your brothers you shall set. As king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, there are two qualifications, and you can jot these down. We're not going to unpack them at length. Two qualifications. One of them we've already mentioned. The first qualification is this king was to be chosen by God. Israel, you can have a king, but you don't get to choose the king because you don't even know what a king should be. You don't even know what a kingdom is. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. You see, Paul didn't make up these concepts. The New Testament authors received these concepts through the coming of Jesus Christ as they're reading the Old Testament. And so this king was to be chosen by God, not Israel. But secondly, the second qualification we find in the text is the king was to be a fellow Israelite, Or perhaps more precisely, a member of God's household. And different translations do different things here. Your translation may read something like Israelite. I don't know. Some of your translations, if you have the ESV, I think the ESV does do this. Many translations, English translations, render this word brother. It uses familial terms and family imagery. And I prefer that. I think that's actually what the term means most often. And I do think in this context, it means a fellow Israelite. But the point is, this king has to be from within the household of God. That's the point. And it's less about, don't miss this, it's less about ethnicity in this particular case. It's more about worship. The concern is not primarily this person has Hebrew blood running through his veins, though that's a part of this. But the point is, he has to know me because we've seen this throughout Deuteronomy, this same word, it's actually one of those fun words in Hebrew, ah, helps East Tennessee in springtime. (laughs) Brother, this particular word is used in multiple places in Deuteronomy and it's consistently used in a context where God is distinguishing his people and their worship from the false worship of others. And so I think that's a part of what's happening here. This is a king that will come from within God's household, but fundamentally the purpose of this is he will lead God's people in worship of the one true and living God, as we're gonna see here in a bit. And so, this would be God's king, God would choose this king, and he would be one from within God's household. Finally, finally, So that's the qualifications. Finally, in addition to the occasion and the qualifications for God's king, we find the instructions for God's king. And some of you are thinking, man, we're getting out early this morning. Well, don't count your chickens before they hatch, okay? The instructions for God's king. I warned you, didn't I? Moses begins with what the king must not do. Fascinating instructions. What the king must not do. Let's look at these. Verses 16 and 17. Only he, that is God's king, must not acquire many horses for himself. You can't stack up on horses. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Amen? Amen? wise, lest his heart turn away. And then finally, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there are three instructions, we'll call them prohibitions, three prohibitions here. What not to do first, and then he gets to what to do. But what not to do first, first of all, the king must not seek to acquire many horses. Now, horses were a way of measuring military strength in the ancient world. So God's king was not to pursue military strength by the standards of other nations. That is to say, God, God, I think here is intimating that I'm gonna redefine what strength really is for you. After all, if Israel had learned anything by this point, and their journey with the Lord, their God. It was that God Himself was their strength. God had granted them military victory over a nation far superior to them with regard to military strength. And if we had the time, we'd turn back and, well, perhaps it would distract, but not entirely. Exodus 14, and I'm not turning there. Exodus 14, Israel is standing before the Red Sea. And on their heels is Pharaoh and his intimidating army. And as Israel stands there, of course, you know, things like this happen. God says to Moses, you know, what are you doing calling out to me? Tell the people to walk. Love that. There's water here, Lord. Lord. I just assumed something had to change before we started walking through the water. Love it. but The God of the water, of course, calls them to walk. Splits the Red Sea. One of the things that is said there in Exodus 14, it's around verse 15, I believe, is Israel, God will fight for you. And then some translations read, you need only to be silent. Some translations read, you need only to be still. The point, I think, is the same. You're not going to do anything. I'm fighting this war for you. Israel knows this, but they need to be reminded they need to know that they, know that they know that the living God who had rescued them out of Egypt does not need for them to acquire military prowess. Their success will never depend on their own abilities. Their success will depend entirely on the faithfulness, on the power, and on the presence of God. And that's what's happening here in the text. So their king ought not to acquire many horses. And there's this warning. You notice there's this warning about not returning to Egypt to acquire many horses. But Why is this the case? Well, there are a couple of reasons, I think, here in the text. First of all, Egypt was known for their military strength measured in terms of horse-drawn chariots. In fact, the text back, Exodus 14, verses 7 and and 9 and elsewhere, you find this description of Egyptian military strength in terms of the number of horses and chariots that they have. And so there's a temptation, of course, to go and let's go and model our military after the most successful military. Churches never have this temptation today. We never look outside of the church to model ourselves after successful businesses, right? We never adopt views of leadership, strength, success from those who don't know the Lord. It's the same problem today, isn't it? So God warns them, your king is not to take you back to Egypt to do a study on how they've been successful and then apply that study back in Canaan, where I've called you. What I've called you to do will make no sense to them. And it'll make no sense to you This is close, I think, to what Martin Luther called a theology or, more historically accurate, a theologian of the cross as opposed to a theologian of glory. Martin Luther argues what the cross does is it turns worldly wisdom on its head. And things don't make sense if evaluated on the basis of worldly wisdom, I mean, how much sense does it make to receive life by means of death? How much sense does it make to Israel to receive victory over Roman oppression in the first century by means of submission to Roman oppression? And yet today, isn't it true that we're all tempted, we're all tempted to believe that if we lose political power, we've lost it all? For some of us, if the moral majority falls, the sky is falling. Maybe in God's mercy, He's leading us into a season when strength is going to be redefined by the gospel. Maybe what's happening is the church has subtly adopted a view of success that looked far more like worldly politics than it did a theology of the cross. As I studied this this week, I thought, wow, you know what? What morons? And I know better than this. And the Lord's so gracious, you know, to allow me to go through this process every week. And and doubtless, you know, if I could speak in an anthropomorphic way, how's that for a word? Eric Sams, I saw him in the back, teaches students about these terms and these descriptions about God, applied to God, that really are human descriptions and they're inadequate. But if I can speak in that way, I can just sense the Lord every week when I think wow father Israel is so stupid and that's Monday okay by Friday I'm in sackcloth and ashes and I can't see Israel in the text I see Perry in the text the Lord is so kind and so gracious. So that's a part of it. Part of it is this going back to Egypt. Don't model military success after Egypt, after the world. Don't model success and strength after the world. But secondly, there's, this, there's another facet of this, and it's really related to this facet. Don't go back to slavery Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back, Christian, to the life you had prior to knowing Jesus Christ. And isn't it true? There are times, if we're honest, I think it's true for some of us as we live that life. It's true at times we think maybe that was better. And we may not say that because we know better than that. We know our theology at least. Our theoretical theology tells us we shouldn't say that. But our functional theology manifests itself when we return to the practices and the habits that dishonor the Lord. It's the same thing. A return to slavery. And we've been set free by the gospel. Pay particular attention to two words. This back porch is growing by the moment, and so I've got to really keep going. Two words that appear alongside every prohibition in the text. Look again at verse 15. The king was not to acquire many horses for Himself, You see that? Now glance down at verse 17, where we are told that he was not to acquire many wives for himself. And then finally, same verse, he was not to acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. In other words, God's king was not to be a self-serving, self-exalting, self-gratifying leader. God's king was to be self-sacrificial. He was to give himself on behalf of the people over whom he reigned. And at times, reigning well meant serving. At times, in God's paradigm, the king looked more like a slave than the stereotypical king. The second prohibition mentioned, and we're going to go through these next two quickly, second prohibition mentioned is the king must not acquire many wives not much needs to be said about that. Don't do this. That is, don't acquire many wives. And and wives, I would suggest the same to you don't acquire many husbands. But the point here isn't really polygamy. Not really. That's a part of it, and we could do a study on polygamy throughout scripture, and that's a fun topic for another day. It's contrary to God's design. God did create, I'll plug that in, God did create Adam and Eve, and that's it. One man, one woman together for life. But here the point is not so much sexual immorality inherent in polygamy, the point here has to do with the danger of idolatry through political alliance. Because in the ancient world, and even this is the case today, acquiring many wives oftentimes took, took place in order to secure these other alliances with other kingdoms, other nations. And so if you wanted to secure an alliance with a particular kingdom, you would then marry someone from that kingdom. A daughter, perhaps, of the king. And verse 17 explicitly tells us that the danger here is the king's heart turning away from worshiping God. That's the danger. Solomon eventually embodies this. And I'm not going to turn here either, but 1 Kings chapter 11 gives this description of Solomon. 1 Kings 11 verses 1 through 8, who has approximately 1,000 women in his harem. And we are told that it's by means of all of these marriages and concubines for the purpose of political alliance, It's by means of all of this that Solomon actually falls prey to idolatry. That's the point. The king must be a worshiper of the true and living God exclusively. And then third, the third prohibition for the king is that he must not pursue personal wealth through the acquisition of much silver and gold. That is to say, he was not to be mastered by a love for money. And again, this is for himself. He is not to be focused on himself focused on others. Now, in verses 18 and 19, and we're getting there, verses 18 and 19, we learn what the king was to do. And this is fascinating to me. When given the opportunity to highlight the most fundamental responsibility of the king of Israel, I want you to notice what God says through Moses in verses 18 and 19. What is to characterize God's king? Verse 18, when he sits on the throne, as if to say this is the very first thing you should do. He shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life. This is to be read and studied daily that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Don't miss this brothers and sisters. The fundamental responsibilities of God's king have little to do with how to reign over a people. The fundamental responsibilities for God's king have little to do with how to acquire international influence or how to fortify economic stability or how to conquer foreign powers and secure alliances. You don't find any of that anywhere in this chapter. His fundamental responsibilities were copying, studying, and obeying God's word. not terribly unique. God's king was to be an example for the people he led. The character of this king mattered more than his national abilities. By the way, leaders can never take others where they themselves have not gone. It's always the case The king could not give what he did not possess. And so if God's people were ever to fear and love and serve the Lord their God, they must, they must have a king who modeled this for them, who led them in the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord and in service to the Lord. Well. Wow. Where does all of this lead us? So much more we could say, but I want to bring all of this together. And we've done it some throughout the sermon, but let's make it really clear. Where does all of this finally lead us? Do you know how the New Testament begins in Matthew 1.1? Matthew 1.1. Again, for the third time, I'm not turning there, okay? The book of the genealogy of, Of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. The New Testament, that is, from the very first verse, begins introducing Jesus to us as God's promised King. The King has come, Matthew says. Moreover, rather than acquiring for himself that same phrase that keeps appearing in Deuteronomy chapter 17, rather than acquiring for himself, Jesus comes not to be served. And I heard some of you begin to whisper Mark 10:45. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus' self-sacrificial service culminates, doesn't it, on a cross where he is crucified in our place and for our sins through no fault of his own. And then on the third day, he's raised in glorious power. Jesus is God's different kind of king. And so in this sense, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 is a prophecy about Christ. Christ. And it is not fulfilled, finally, until the coming of Jesus Christ. As Jesus told Pilate in John 18, verse 36, I love that section in John's gospel. Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this, what? World. And this is after Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus, of course, says, well, yes and no. No. This is why good theologians always respond this way. My wife told me just this past week, she called me on the phone. I was at the office. Boy, I'm getting off now, but I'm off. And I was at the office and she called me. She had a question about her Bible reading and she asked a question about her Bible reading and she says, is it this or is it this? And I said, yes. And she said, I hate that answer. And so I can say, well, Jesus gave it And she would graciously remind me, You are no Jesus. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. So Pilate asks Jesus, Are you a king? And he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, they would look just like the servants of other kings. Actually, by the way, my servants are going to die like I do. And my kingdom's going to grow through that death. Just like the seed that falls to the ground and must first die. That's kingdom growth. So that it might be shown that the power belongs not to us but to God. And Jesus goes on to say, they would be fighting if they were servants of any old typical king so that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I'm only here before you because of the kind of king I am. You have no idea, Pilate, that what you're doing has been ordained by the Father. And it's by means of this process I am bringing the kingdom. If that doesn't get you up in the morning, I don't know what will. Are you trusting in this king? Are you treasuring this king? Have you surrendered to this king? Not to Caesar. Not to a president. And not to a political alliance this side of resurrection. But to the king, a different kind of king. Have you found your life in this king? If you have questions about this, or you think perhaps you're interested in finding out what it means to know and serve this king who for your place, or for your sins died on the cross, was buried and was raised in glorious power, then stay after the service if you would just for a few moments and have a conversation with us. Walk out of those doors and to the left. And then there'll be a little room before you leave the building on the right-hand side and above that room, above the entrance says crossroads. Come in there with us and have a conversation with us about what it may mean to trust in and surrender to this different kind of king. And if you've trusted in Christ as your king, pattern your life after this king. And we'll close with this. What does it mean to pattern your life after King Jesus, this different kind of King. Well, it means that you adopt Christ's leadership. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out the ways in which I've I've swallowed hook, line, and sinker, a view of leadership that is contrary to the gospel. So this means, husbands, you seek to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. That's leadership. Leadership by means of death on behalf of the one you're called to lead. Fathers and mothers, raise your children in the discipline, nurture, and admonition of the Lord. That's that's leadership modeled and patterned after this different kind of king. Elders of the church, deacons of the church, teachers, some of you teach in the public school, some of you teach in private school, some of you teach in homeschool. Principals, administrators, employers, and various other leaders, your leadership should oftentimes look less like lordship in the ways that we conceive of it and more like slavery. It should look less like comfort and more like a cross. You're not a leader to be comfortable you're a leader so that by God's grace, energized by God's Spirit, you'll have the privilege of following in the footsteps of the Savior who gave himself for you on the cross. You're a leader to die for the sake of others. Figuratively, yes, and at times, literally. So pattern your life after King Jesus. This also means embracing beliefs in a life that is contrary to the world around us. We could go off here, but I'm just gonna mention a couple things. Following a king unlike the nations means living in a manner that is unlike the nations. It will mean a different perspective on truth. It will mean a different perspective on love. It will mean a different perspective on gender, sexuality, and marriage. It will mean a different perspective on authority and authorities. It will mean a different response to those authorities. And all of this coupled with a life of self-sacrificial love for those around us. So that others may see us and disagree with us. But when they experience people with whom they disagree who are willing to die for them, it tends to change things a bit. This also means, finally, I'll mention this, spending time daily hearing Christ's voice in the pages of Scripture. And you find that concerning the description of the king. What is the king to do? To copy, study, and do the law? Christ, of course, has accomplished this for us not so that we could disregard God's word, but so that now we have the privilege of hearing his voice on the pages of scripture and being energized by God's spirit to follow his instructions. As I have mentioned, my first pastor, Willie Clark, was a different kind of leader than any leader I had previously known. However, as I reflected on this this week, the reason Pastor Clark was a different kind of leader was because he had come to trust, treasure, and follow a different kind of king, King Jesus. It wasn't Pastor Clark. It was his king that was working in Pastor Clark and through Pastor Clark for the glory of the name of Christ. You see, coming to know this different kind of king Transforms you into a different kind of person. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, that's our desire. Our desire is to worship King Jesus, to treasure King Jesus to know King Jesus, to submit to King Jesus so that then we are transformed by the work of your spirit through Christ into different kinds of people. Would you do this work for your glory? Would you do this work for our good? And would you do this work for the glory of your son? A different kind of king. And his name is And for his sake we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen.